Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. The amazing news is, in this week, that the folks down at Orchard on the Brazos in Texas, west of Houston, that we did some work for at Voice Locket in my film company, just love the work. And we're getting ready to release it to them and then to the world. And it's just so gratifying. There were such wonderful people to work for. Um that was a new line of work in telling founder stories, but I also tell family stories primarily at voicelocket.com. So I hope you'll check it out and let me know if I can help you with any of that. This week's guest is Molly Ruggieri, who's quite the entrepreneur herself, forming something called Counterculture Club, and she's in my business networking group, which is called The Squad with Lauren Widrick. And she was at a a little round table we had, and I know she's been on a number of podcasts, and she's quite the writer as well. So you're in for a treat today. That's the worst feeling in the world is knowing that the thing you're doing is not the right thing to be doing and going against that gut feeling and doing it anyway. This is In Her Words a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In her words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. Gonna be lots of fun things coming up in the 2023 as we approach three years this podcast. Uh, Molly Ruggieri is really quite extraordinary, younger than some of my daughters and has accomplished so much. And her movement in sober coaching and in counterculture club means that people who are not necessarily uh, addicts, alcohol use disorder, alcoholics, they are not necessarily you know, needing to go to rehab or treatment or detox can also turn to someone just because alcohol is not serving them. Don't necessarily have to have DUIs or divorces or, you know, crash and burn in order for alcohol to become just kind of a drag. And so she is going against the culture, against the grain in something called Counterculture Club and is going to have quite the event in January to encourage people to have an alcohol-free, social, fun, you know, party. Um, That alcohol can actually work against the partying, you know, make the party less engaging. Not to mention which you can date and meet people without the beer goggles on. But she's got, you know, quite the job because the culture is so inundated, besotted with alcohol. 
But we had a great chat. We really did. Molly Rogier. Where were you born? I was born in Virginia, Fairfax, Virginia. Did your mother Wait, ever... Are we, are we doing the interview now? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Did your mother ever tell you anything about her pregnancy, labor, and delivery with you? Uh, she did. Uh, I think, yeah, when she was pregnant with me, I think she was painting a house or something with my dad, and she just heard a voice that told her to get off of the ladder because she was pregnant. Um, so that's the story she told me. And then craving-wise, I think she was really craving Mexican food and burgers, which are like my two favorite foods. So, um, but she was, she was 27 when she had me, so she was still pretty young. And um, I was a very colicky baby. I cried a lot. Uh, I guess I had, um, I was not doing well with like the hospital formula. So I needed some kind of specific formula that was expensive. And uh, yeah, I've been dramatic from, from the beginning. <laughs> you know, colicky babies are supposed to be smart. Yeah. Supposed to be super smart. I believe that. And empathic. Hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. Do you think you're empathic? I wonder about that. I think I might be like an intuitive empath. I was researching like the different kinds. What is that kind? What is that? I thought so, all empaths were intuitive. I, they are, but I think there's the empath where you can like feel other people's emotions like they're your own. And then I think intuitive is more you can perceive other people's emotions and energy, but you don't really take them on. Oh. And then there's one that is like more of a physical empath where you actually get physically, like the physical symptoms of the people around you. Like that it manifests physically. Tough. I would want yeah. to limit who I was. Around. Yeah, I was like, that, I don't, I'm glad I don't have that one. <laughs> that doesn't sound great. <laughs> um, have you ever said anything to someone and they said, Oh my God, how did you know that? Probably, yeah. I think I'm pretty good at reading people and like, again, picking up on their energy. I can't think of a specific example, but. Well, I saw that you coach. Yes. Like when you coach people, do they get that? Yeah, when I coach people, they, the common thing I hear is you have a really good way of like taking, synthesizing what I say and like making it, make sense or drawing conclusions or like reading between the lines of like what what I'm really saying or what I really mean. There are all different kinds of coaches. What kind of coaching do you do? What do you gravitate toward? Yeah, so I am a certified life coach and as well I am a certified this naked mind coach, which is a science-based modern approach to alcohol substance use. Um, so alcohol freedom is what I call it. I'm an alcohol freedom coach. So I really specialize in helping people change their relationships to alcohol um, in a modern way using science-based tools and strategies. Uh, it's, it's really for people that consider themselves to be more of a gray area drinker. So they probably wouldn't feel comfortable going to a 12-step meeting. Um, they're not really a candidate for going to rehab or something like that, but they recognize their drinking is causing them problems or, you know, stress in their lives and they want to change it, but they need tools and help to, to do that. When you were a little kid, what would your mom, like two or three years old, what would your mom have said about your personality? <laughs> uh, I think she would have said I had a big vocabulary and I, 
I loved reading. I was very kind of adultish from the beginning. Like I, I thought I was an adult and tried to talk as if I was an adult. And, you know, I, I was pretty creative, but uh, I wasn't overly silly or goofy ever. Um, Did so. they talk to you as though you were an adult? Yeah. Yeah, my parents always kind of used the adult tone with us. They never did like baby voices or anything like and that. And they didn't talk down to you? No. And as a result, they, they probably sort of broke things down for you in a respectful way, but in a way that you could kind of absorb what they were saying. Yeah, totally. So um, everybody asks about sex. What about death? How did they talk to you about death? Like when did you encounter, did you have a pet or a grandma or anything? Hmm. How did they talk to you about that? That is a good question. Honestly, I don't really recall a specific conversation about it. We we didn't really lose any pets at a young age that they would have had to have that conversation. And my, you know, any death I experienced luckily was when I was a teenager and I was an adult. So I really honestly I don't remember having a conversation about that. But my parents are both Christians, very, you know, and religious. And so anytime we talk about any kind of death, it would be that they're in heaven or they're in a better place or, you know, that kind of thing. So did they take so, you to church? Yes, they did. I what went kind to of church? Uh, a non-denominational church. We started out going to Presbyterian and then we converted to doing uh, more of like a casual non-denominational. So we went to Forest Hills uh, most of my childhood. And then they started going to this church called New Charlotte when I, after I left for college and was in New York, so. What do you make of that now? What, like, where are you with God, Jesus, the whole nine yards? Yeah, uh, you just get into all the deep topics, <laughs> don't you? Um, I. I would say I'm more spiritual. I definitely believe in, you know, a power greater than myself. I don't go to church. I'm not necessarily a Christian in the traditional sense, but I do, I am spiritual and I do believe in higher beings and, and that sort of a thing. I mean, I pray occasionally, but that's not a regular practice. How about meditation? I do meditate. Not as often as I should, but I've had practices regularly throughout, you know, after I quit drinking, I got really into it. The way your mother heard that voice or understood that probably wasn't an audible voice, but like a, a thought that was in the form of a sentence, I'm mm -hmm. guessing. Have you ever had that, whether it's like an inspiration or just like a thought that was like, I didn't come up with that. That just sort of, that sort of came to me. Yeah, I have that a lot. I, um, I, ha I really trust my intuition. I just go with my gut feeling a lot. I call them messages, but I think it's more, I don't know, my inner knowing or like my inner truth that guides me. And I feel like in my life, everything has kind of happened in a way that makes sense and like has led me to, you know, the next thing. and. I just feel like there's a quote that's like, I know I am being guided. So I think, you know, there's something greater than us that is guiding our lives. But. What's an example of one of those thoughts that came to you that you were like, wow. In retrospect, that was, that was quite something. 
I mean, the first example that comes to mind isn't necessarily what's happened since being an adult, but when I was a kid, I went to visit my uncles in Washington, D.C., and we were taking the subway or the metro, and it was like torrential rain downpouring, and so we were going to take the elevator, and I just said to them, I was like, I don't think we should take the elevator, and I was like seven or eight or something as a kid, and then the power went out like right after that, and obviously the elevator stopped working, so they were all impressed that, that I had that gut feeling that we shouldn't take and that you spoke up. Yeah. Um, has there been a time when you had a gut feeling and you overrode it and did it anyway and regretted it? Uh, yeah, mostly when I was drinking. I did that often. Um, and that's the worst feeling in the world is knowing that the thing you're doing is not the right thing to be doing and going against that gut feeling and doing it anyway. I um, actually had a moment in New York towards the end of my drinking where I was at a concert with a friend and then we went to a bar afterwards and she left and I was leaving the bar was going to go get cigarettes because I was smoking cigarettes at the time and I remember walking and I was very intoxicated but I remember walking to the bodega to get cigarettes and thinking I should go home but instead I decided to get cigarettes and then go back to the bar to hang out with these people that I had just met and it ended up not being a very good night so I just, that moment stuck out to me during that time because I didn't often have those gut intuition feelings during that time period, but I had that in that moment and I did not listen to it. There are two messages in that. Um, everyone else can focus on the drinking part. I focus on the, you're learning, Molly, trust your gut, mm -hmm. trust yourself. Like that's a reliable message. Like you're your own body is like telling you mm -hmm. what to think. Your gut, your, uh, what do they call it? Limbic brain, the mm -hmm. brain that's in your abdomen is telling you. People call it your heart, your gut, your, you know, your instinct. Mm -hmm. You believe in that? A brain that's not in your head, it's actually wired into you? Well, yeah. I mean, there's technically like we have our two brains, like our, our gut and our our brain and our heads, they both kind of control our, you know, nervous system and not just digestion, but also like all the ways that our brain communicates with our body and all of that, like the, the vagus nerve and all of that. I talked to a woman yesterday and she's dating this guy and he's new and she wants to like him. She wants to date him more. And she said she was physically like having gastrointestinal issues mm. and she, she said she thought that he really triggered that yeah. in her and so there's that whole pay attention do you tell clients uh, of your coaching business pay attention to that yeah that's a huge part of of what we do in the process of kind of looking at changing thoughts and beliefs so that's that's what essentially the main work of of my coaching is is helping people free themselves from all the limiting beliefs they have about drinking so that they choose not to drink and alcohol is not a temptation any longer because they don't see any reason or need for it because they've realized that it doesn't actually do anything for them. So I ask them, you know, when you have this specific thought or this specific belief, where do you feel it in your body? Because uh, that can give us some insight into, you know, the emotion that it's creating. And then, you know, that when you, when you bring that to your attention, 
you can ask yourself, like, do I want to feel this way and see the connection of your thoughts causing your emotions and your physical reaction. So that mind body is so tied together. Let me ask about alcohol because I have this long and rich history. But I, I get the feeling in some ways we're becoming more sophisticated about alcohol. Mm-hmm. And in some ways we're still stuck in a bunch of old ideas. Um, like one thing is, is a kind of binary either or. Mm-hmm. You know, either it's great mm-hmm. or it's, you know, part of a full life. I can't imagine a life a meal without a glass of wine. You know, yeah. that's just like depriving yourself. Um, or, and I have Southern Baptist aunts and uncles who are this way, why is there wine at this wedding? We know how much problem that has caused for blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And that was this weekend. Mm-hmm. Like, what are they doing having, you know, these people are in recovery, how dare they? And, you know, my nephew said, we never, ever drank around mom mm. because we didn't want to trigger her mm. because she had been to treatment multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you, like, there are some people who, it's much more, even in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, it refers to different types. And there are some people who come into the rooms, into 12-step recovery, who I really believe their primary problem is bipolar disorder, even something like, you know, borderline personality or even something else that I don't know how to deal with. So how do you get into this space of we're here for what works for you? Mm -hmm. We're not here to demonize, awfulize, or glorify. We're just here... How do you break out of the binary teetotaler versus party girl? Yeah, I mean, that is my whole mission, essentially, with Counterculture Club and with my coaching and with, you know, the articles I write and things like that is to destigmatize this idea that there's only, there's normal drinkers and there's problem drinkers, then nothing in between. Because in my mind, it's, we all know that it's only recommended for women to have one glass of alcohol a day maximum. And we also know most drinkers that drink alcohol, they'll have multiple glasses. And so what is a problem if we're measuring it by CDC guidelines and we know someone that has two glasses of wine, that's above the recommendation for women. So is that a problem? And it's, I think it's arbitrary to try and get figure out whether or not your alcohol use is an issue and just tell yourself, you know, well, I haven't been to rehab or I haven't been in a car accident with drunk driving. I'm going to take it. That logic is so mind boggling to me. And I, I used to think that way, but to wait until something horrible happens to decide to not consume a thing anymore that's already giving you problems just doesn't make sense. And it's all social conditioning to me. I think that We've just been fed this narrative for so long that, again, there are alcoholics and there are normal drinkers. I didn't jive with that definition because I went to those meetings and I looked around and I thought to myself, well, why am I the only one who has a quote unquote problem 
now that I'm not drinking. But everybody that I drink with is still out there drinking the same way I did and they don't have a problem because they're still drinking. Like that didn't make sense. And I just knew so many people that, you know, maybe they didn't drink as much as I did or as frequently as I did, but they would black out or they would drunk text their ex-boyfriend and do things they regretted. And how is that not causing a problem? It's just the whole narrative of separation of normal and alcoholic is, is really tired and it's a disservice to all of us because alcohol is a toxin. It's bad for all of us. It causes seven different types of preventable cancer. Every drink a woman consumes ups her chances of breast cancer significantly. It makes us age more quickly. Like it's horrible for our bodies. We're all made of the same stuff. So why are we trying so hard to keep it in our lives? I'm trying to host events that are purely social, that are social, almost social experiments. So I am reaching out to drinkers just as much as non-drinkers and sober curious people because I want to bring all of us together and show that anybody can enjoy a social experience without drinking alcohol because it's now become default to have alcohol at every single social gathering that exists. So we're drinking even when we don't really want to or need to because it's there. Why are we so casual with something that's so toxic for us? That being said, I also don't demonize alcohol. I don't think it's a morality thing. I don't think it makes you bad or good if you drink or you don't drink. Uh, and I think that that mindset also makes it harder for people to change their relationship with alcohol because that mindset can often breed shame and guilt. And what does shame and guilt make us want to do? It makes us want to numb out and escape reality. And then we end up drinking more. So. That's how I feel about that. Three out of four of my kids are millennials and the other ones are Gen Z. Um, the, the millennials, particularly the ones that are a little bit older, that you would certainly fit in this, they remember 9-11. Mm -hmm. They saw their parents react to the Great Recession. Then there was COVID and the Trump presidency. Um, the anxiety in this country is off the flipping charts. Um, and that's from, I'm a boomer. Mm -hmm. um, so what is a healthy way of processing all the madness? Uh, that's a great question. I don't think we're meant to, oh shoot, <laughs> Billy. Hey, Pup. <sighs> She's trapped. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I don't think that we're meant to process all of the madness. I think that we have too much, honestly, not too, I don't want to say too much access because it's good. It's a good double-edged sword, but I think that we are constantly exposed to news all over the country and such, or the globe in such a way that really is unprecedented. That's never been. I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah. We elect. Yeah. To expose ourselves. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, so that was my suggestion <laughs> is to cut that exposure. So one of the things I tell my clients to do is set up a morning routine for yourself where you don't get on your phone first thing. You don't turn on the news first thing. Uh, there's this Marie Forleo is a, uh, I don't know if you know her. She's an entrepreneur and writes a bunch of books. And she has a book where she says, create before you consume. And that's kind of uh, an affirmation or a saying that I tell my clients of before you 
let the world tell you how to feel before you plug into the news or listen to the morning. Just take some time for yourself, whether it's meditation or journaling or writing a gratitude list, going outside, (laughs) like that will set your tone for the day and you get to control your tone. Whereas if you plug into the news first thing, you're already in reactive mode for your whole day and you're not in control of how you start it and how you feel. So yeah, I personally, I am not a big social media person at all. I don't, I listen to the news, I'm informed, but I'm not, you know, addicted to it. I don't have the news on all day long. I'm not constantly refreshing Twitter. And I just think, yeah, you've got to like limit your exposure and and kind of be mindful of your energy and, and also understand you don't have to take take on the problems and the emotions and the burdens of the whole world. That's not going to solve anything. It's just going to make you anxious and stressed. You're sitting here with these two wonderful pups. <laughs> That's a biggie, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And you have a cup of, you've got water. You're not, you don't have a ton of uh, caffeine in front of you. You don't have a jolt energy drink in front of you. Well, it's coffee, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also, uh, how about yoga? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I do hot yoga. I used to do it every single day before the pandemic. And I got a little bit out of it. I still do it, but I also do other workouts like circuit training and stuff like that. Yeah. But I love it. I need to do it more often. And now I, I read about a study last week that said meditation, mindfulness, as effective as some antidepressants. Oh yeah, I've heard that as well. I think we're learning more and more about different things like between breath work and meditation and yoga and all of these things that had kind of been seen as maybe woo-woo in the past or like these spiritual practices, but they're not really rooted in science, that there is a really big scientific connection to how these practices benefit your mental and physical health in a much bigger way than we realize initially. How do you handle um, acquaintances or even friends who are chronically negative, want to bring up anxiety-producing things? Could be politics, could just be, the Panthers suck, man. (laughs) I honestly don't really have any many people like that in my life. I don't I purposefully don't, you know, really choose to spend time with people that are are in that way. I don't I think in the past when I lived in New York, there's definitely a lot more of that energy and it's just it just makes me feel not good. And I just, I don't want to seek out people that I I look for friendships and relationships that are going to grow me as a human and like inspire me and help me develop. And, you know, that kind of person isn't going to, so I keep them at, you know, keep them at arm's length and definitely don't bring them into my, my close circle of people. You're a writer. Say more about your creative, creative practice. What is your, what's your practice? I, well, I journal every morning just out of habit. I don't really write anything great. I just, you know, just for the sake of doing it and being the practice of doing it, writing is kind of how I... Do you share that with anyone? Not my journal, but I do, I do write to process and make sense of things. And it kind of helps me connect the dots in my own life. So 
I write a weekly newsletter for my members and I sit down and, you know, sometimes I know what I'm going to write about, but other times I have no idea. And I tell myself, I'll just use an old newsletter and or I'll send an article or something. And then I always end up writing something. And uh, a lot of times I will get ideas for something either when I'm like on a run or, you know, doing something other than like sitting at my desk. So that's like kind of where I get inspiration or have ideas come to me. And, but yeah, I mean, that's my favorite way of communicating over anything else is, is writing. It's always been what I've done. Even as a kid, like we would, my sister and I would write letters to our parents when we were bad and like slide them under their doors, apologizing and do it for each other too. And it's just, I grew up writing thank you notes. And Please like, tell me your mother kept those. I'm sure she has some of them. Yeah. Have you ever asked to look at them? I think, yeah, I, th I don't know. She's got a lot of different stuff we've done. So I should actually ask her if she, she has any of those. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol. Use as directed and keep out of reach of children. What joy do you get out of writing? Do you go back over your journal? And what, yeah. you, what insights do you get by going it's, back? I love it for exactly that. I, so I have two journals. I have one that I like free, free write in, and then I have another that's a five-year journal. So you write one sentence every day for five years. And I've been pretty good about writing in it. So I'm in like year three now. And I was, your memory isn't a reliable narrator. I actually just wrote about memory in my uh, recent newsletter and how you remember things differently than they actually happened. But by having a journal, you can go back and read exactly how you felt at a certain time. And I talk a lot about data and, and in my coaching and taking data and using it to make decisions. And so it's like, it's data that you have from your past to, to back up or to debunk something that you're thinking now. I had one relationship with a therapist in which I ended it and it became profoundly unhealthy. As is there ever a client where you would essentially fire the client? You would say, I don't think I'm helping you. I don't think this is healthy. Um, I can refer you or you can find somebody else, but would you ever fire a client? Uh, I haven't gotten to that point yet, but looking back, I think there were some people, there was like just one or two that I probably should have ended things with earlier because they, they were not, I was, they were not sharing with me. They were not talking to me. They didn't, they weren't the ones that wanted to do the coaching. I don't think, I think their parents or their family pushed them into it. Ah. And so I think they were in denial and they weren't ready to address it. And so I couldn't help them when they weren't being honest with me. They weren't telling me the truth. And, you know, there's been two clients that I had that feeling with. And again, I kind of had that gut feeling when I was doing my consultation call with them that maybe they weren't 
the right fit as a client, but unfortunately I was very early on with coaching and I, I didn't quite trust that gut feeling yet. I thought maybe it was imposter syndrome or nerves or what have you. And so I, I worked with them anyway, despite having that feeling. And every time I've had that feeling about a client, it's been correct. So I think I'm more judicious in who I work with. I don't just work with anybody that comes to me necessarily. I want to make sure I can actually help them. And um, so, yeah, moving forward, I think if I realize it's not a good fit, then I would, I would feel like it was in the best interest for both of us to, to end it early. Have you ever said to clients or had people, um, they, you just like totally need an intervention. You don't, you don't need what we're doing. You need to go to treatment, go directly to treatment, like DUIs, jail, you know, falling down a flight of stairs repeatedly, things like that, that are these huge red flags that say it's time for you to go to the next level and, and, and time for rehab. I have not yet encountered that. I generally, I have had consults with people that I was a little concerned about that I didn't think, you know, I I thought would maybe be a little too severe to work with, but, um, you know, I recommend treatment or inpatient for those folks. And, um, you know, I've had friends that have gone through that and I've, I've helped get them into treatment programs and things like that as well. So I, I think I have a good grasp, but at the same time, it's just hard because people will lie and they won't tell you the full truth. And so you don't always know. You just have to, again, kind of have to trust your intuition. And if something feels wrong or you feel like someone is not being truthful with you, then, you know, it's okay to end the relationship and just you know, refer them out to some, someone in the medical profession, because as we know, alcohol withdrawal is one of the only drug withdrawals that can actually kill you. So I don't want to be in the position of being irresponsible with someone that is, has a severe addiction like that, physical dependence. Do you have friends or have you seen anybody who really, really did benefit from 12-step recovery? Uh, what type of person and what type of meeting would where where have you noticed anything about where uh, twelve step really works? Yeah, I do have some friends that have done really well with it. Um, I think that the folks that do well are the ones that are you know wor- working constantly to stay in. As my friend says in the solution, I think that's an AA term, um, that are doing all of the stuff you need to do to stay healthy and to stay sober. It's not enough to just go to a meeting. It's, you have to be honest with yourself, with others. You have to, you know, give back. You have to have some spiritual practices, not necessarily spiritual, but some self-care practices and, and, you know, live as honestly and as, uh, healthily as you can so that you kind of build up those muscles and that preventative life so that you don't end up going back to substances. There are um, a bunch of old men like me who do it wrong, Hmm. who they become 12-step evangelists, yes, (laughs) uh, so-called big book thumpers, Nazis, uh, bleeding deacons. I encountered some of those. (laughs) Um, 
what does that behavior look like and what can you kind of caution or counsel your elder here about not doing when you have a 20-something or even a 30-something walk into the room for the first time? Um, I think it, don't tell them about themselves, I think. <laughs> like, we're all the same. We're all addicts. And I just, I, I felt like a lot of messaging I was getting was that I couldn't trust myself or this is how I worked or this is what I would do. And I just think we're all different and we all, you know, we're consuming the same substance, but we got there for very different reasons. So don't assume that you know everything there is to know about an individual and their experience. Just because you've made so sobriety work for you doesn't necessarily mean the way you did it is going to work for somebody else. Are you fundamentally like a hopeful person? You don't seem like you have too much anxiety and stress now. You seem like you're in a good space. Well, that's great to hear. I, uh, I do have a lot of stress, but I think that's just part of the territory. And the, the stress is because I'm doing something I love and I'm building something and I'm doing something I've never done before. So there's a lot of room for error and figuring things out and just busy. And, um, but, but yeah, I'm a very hopeful person for sure. I think I'm very pretty optimistic and I just focus on, I'm future focused rather than like ruminating on the past or having regrets. And I should have, I, like an idiot, I didn't even ask you, what are you building? That you're so. <laughs> uh, so I'm the founder of Counterculture Club, which is an alcohol-free global community that our whole idea is to counter the mainstream idea that we need to drink alcohol to have fun, full lives and, and socialize and make friends. And so I offer a membership community. It's virtual and in person. So we do weekly calls with our virtual community. And then in Charlotte, we have you know, regular member events. We also do big, large-scale events for the public. So in January, we're doing Charlotte's first non-alcoholic drinks festival, which is going to be really big, bringing like tons of different beverage sponsors in. And my goal is, again, like I mentioned earlier, to really show everyone, the whole world, that anybody can benefit from drinking less uh, or not drinking at all. And there's so much to enjoy and experience when you cut back on alcohol or remove it from your life. So essentially, like I wanted to position not drinking or drinking less as an aspirational lifestyle and just destigmatize opting out or drinking less and not have it be this gloom and doom. I can't drink. I lost my drinking privileges, X, Y, Z. So I'm trying to make it as cool and appealing as possible and showcasing the abundance and the good that can come from making that fun. choice. Yeah, exactly. Sounds and fun. like, yeah, you don't, it doesn't mean anything negative about you to choose not to drink. And it is a choice. So just kind of showcasing how great a lifestyle like this can be so that people that do drink usually, if they're doing dry January, they'll come to this event. They'll see that they're capable of socializing without drinking and having a good time. And I think that, you know, firsthand experience is the most powerful way to change someone's mind. So by creating these experiences, we're giving people the opportunity they might not have otherwise. Because like we said earlier, every single social event, there's alcohol. So you don't even have the chance to see if you can have fun without it. Uh, so that's a big goal of ours. And then again, I have coaching under that umbrella too. So I do the alcohol freedom coaching as part of the counterculture club offerings. Yeah. 
if we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived was this little digital audio clip, what is your legacy? My legacy? Uh, I think just helping people and make their lives a little easier or get in touch with themselves and and creating relationships and connection and and you know helping make life a little easier for other people who have been where I've been and yeah I get the sense that right now just in this town there are thousands of people who would say Molly changed my life I don't know about thousands, but I'd say a couple for sure. I definitely, I, you know, I hear it a lot from our members and um, my clients about how, you know, doing Counterculture Club or working with me has changed them in some way. So, you know, I still have a lot more work to do, but I definitely have gotten that feedback, which is always really nice to hear and still kind of crazy considering where I was like five years ago. Um, no one ever would say something like that to me back then. I actually, one of my members, we do these daily gratitude lists in our Slack channel. And one of the members recently thanked me because she flosses regularly now and had a really good <laughs> dentist appointment. And I was like, if 27 year old Molly could hear someone saying like, thank you for talking about flossing all the time because now I do it more. That was one of those things that I noticed I actually started doing in sobriety consistently that I'd never done before. Um, so just like little boring self-care habits, but yeah. I very much respect your work and I'm, I'm a fan and I thank you for your time. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Very fun. You heard it. She said it was fun. She said she had a good time, even though threw her a couple of curveballs, wasn't expecting them, not your usual conversation. Molly, thank you for making time for an old man to sit around and chat. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best with Counterculture Club and everything you're doing as this budding entrepreneur and writer. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported manlistening.com, this podcast in her words, voicelocket.com, and all of my crazy, wacky adventures, including the books, the films, everything. The Media Empire. Thanks so very much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.